many of us brothers and sisters will come to illiterate, ignorant to increase my ilm is to give that while constantly going around exposing the secrets of others I took my mom, we went to the immigration test their hadiths for example in some books A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajeem Bismillahirrahmanirrahim One of the worst feelings which may exist within any human being is the feeling of loneliness. Loneliness is not only an unpleasant feeling or emotion which may exist in the life of human beings but at the same time an extremely dangerous emotion. Studies show that at any given point in time in this country, 40 million people will be feeling lonely. Studies also indicate that 25% of Americans will be born and they'll die and during this entire life will not have one true friend which can take them out of the feeling and the emotion of loneliness. The majority of Americans will only have two friends only two friends to take them out of this feeling of loneliness. And like I said, loneliness is not just a terrible feeling. But in the same time, it is indeed a dangerous one. For scholars of human behavior suggest there are causes for early death, obesity, at 15%, air pollution at 5%, excessive drinking at 25%, and loneliness at 45%, especially at times like this, holidays where everyone's gone shopping, people are going on vacations, they're traveling, they're uniting with their families, Studies indicate that 61% of Americans look forward to such times, such seasons, not because they receive gifts, and not because they don't have to go to work. And it is not because they get to go on vacation, but it is indeed because they get to see and mingle and interact with those who they have missed throughout the year. And loneliness is indeed the number one cause behind depression. Today, one out of ten Americans are chronically depressed. Studies indicate, look at this shocking number, it is unbelievable. Studies indicate if you were to gather all the causes of death around the world, HIV, AIDS, murder, civil wars, the global war, drive-by shootings, any cause of death combined together, depression still remains the number one lethal weapon against human life with all of them combined together. Depression takes the life of millions of people around the world every year. And this is a topic that sometimes we take lightly. I remember several years ago, I had the pleasure of going with one of my friends from California to Hajj. So we went to Hajj together. He was very involved in the Islamic Center. He would pray five times a day. He would even pay his charity. One day, I received a text message from one of his family members that my brother 
has committed suicide. He's thrown himself off the bridge. Mid-twenties. And indeed, it is a matter that sometimes we take lightly. If we see people in our family, in our community, amongst our friends who are feeling lonely or depressed, and they open up to us, they speak to us, or we just observe them to be depressed, all we know how to say or to do, even as parents sometimes, even as family members sometimes, is remember the tragedy of Ahlul Bayt, have faith in Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you ease, and we think that this is going to have an instant effect on this individual that is suffering from chronic depression. Yes, this definitely helps. This definitely reminds them, but this is not going to end their depression. Our responsibility there and then, my dear brothers and sisters, my, the parents, the siblings, the friends, the community members is what? For us to create a bond of trust with that individual. To be genuine towards them. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that there are many different forms of sadaqah. One form of sadaqah is when I give a, a dollar, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars with the right hand while the left hand would not be aware. True? Have you not all heard this hadith? Rasulullah says another form of sadaqah is helping a brother, helping a sister, a smile to them, a kind word to them. But you know the problem in our community is if someone comes to me and tells me, Jawad, I am depressed. I have family problems. I'm going through a very bad time. I tell him, brother, inshallah, everything is going to be okay. The next thing I do is what? I tell everyone. Do you know that this Muhammad, he's, he's depressed? He's taking antidepressants. He's even contemplating suicide. So instead of actually helping the person, I have not only destroyed my obligation towards this brother or sister, I have not only missed my chance of giving sadaqah, but I have also exposed this person in the same time. I've exposed their weakness when they have entrusted me. A beautiful story. When Musa decides, or he's given the order by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to take Bani Israel and to go through the river to escape from Pharaoh. You all know the story. So Musa takes all of Bani Israel until they reach the river. When they reach the river, Allah says to Musa, Musa, use your asa and the river will cut open, split open, then you and your community will escape from Pharaoh who's coming with his troops right behind you. So Musa, he hits it once, doesn't open. Twice, doesn't open. The stick does miracles all the time. It becomes a, a scorpion. It, it does everything he wanted, but now it's not working. So Musa says, Jibra'il, what is happening? I don't see the effect of the stick, the asa. Jibra'il comes back, he says, Musa, there's a problem. Amongst your community is a sinner. Amongst your community is a sinner. Unless the sinner leaves or escapes, then the river will not split open. You'll be stuck here until Pharaoh gets to you. So Musa immediately he stood up and he said, listen, there is one of you who is a sinner. I'm asking this person to leave so that we can escape. Oh, you person who is a sinner, do not be so selfish to endanger everyone here because of your sins. I ask you to leave. He was looking, no one left. So he comes, Jibra'il. Why don't you tell me who this guy is? I'll take him out myself. There is no reason for the delay. 
So Jibrail goes, he says, Oh Allah, Musa says, Who is this person? So I take him out myself. Who is this sinner? Who's jeopardizing the security and the salvation of the entire Bani Israel? Allah says, Musa, Musa, do you know what this man's sin is? Oh ya Allah. He is the ma. He's the one who exposes others. Now you want me to expose him? His greatest sin was not adultery. His greatest sin was not theft. Indeed, even his greatest sin was not murder. His greatest sin was that he was constantly busy, look, busy looking at the faults of others while forgetting the faults of himself. While constantly going around exposing the secrets of others while forgetting that we live a life that does not need to be exposed. So then Musa gets up and he says, Oh man, you know who you are. This is your sin. Allah has revealed your sin but has not revealed your identity. He then asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness. Allah forgives him at Bani Israel escape. So when it comes to the issue of depression or loneliness within our community or any other problems, let us understand that this, my dear brothers and sisters, is a form of sadaqah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, In shakartum la'azidannakum wa in kafartum fa'inna adabi la'shadeed If you are thankful, then I will increase. And if you are not thankful towards any of my bounties, then they shall be decreased. What do I mean? I mean Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the bounty of vision. Allah has given you the bounty of vision, you all see. How are you thankful with this vision? You are thankful with this vision when you use it to seek the pleasure and the satisfaction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah says, the more you use it, in that sense, in that regard, the more Allah will empower this vision. That is why the true mu'min, the true believer, sees what others do not see in people. Sees certain potentials in some of the youth that others will never see, will never realize, will never recognize. And sees a certain vision for a community or a family or an individual that other people will never envision. Same goes with our hearing ability. Same goes with our hands. Same goes with our eyes. Same goes with our hearts. When you use them to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will empower them. Allah will empower this intellect. Allah will empower this mind. And when we use them to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will decrease from its abilities. Same goes for the ni'mah and the blessing of freedom. Same goes for the ni'mah and the blessing of having a family. Same goes for the blessing and the ni'mah of having wealth. Same goes for the blessing and the ni'mah of having health. When we have those things in our lives and others do not have them, others do not enjoy them, the only way for me to protect my family and to increase in the ni'mas and the blessings of Allah towards my family is to help another family. The only way for me to protect my assets and my wealth is to give some of that wealth to those who do not have that wealth. The only way, listen to this, for me to increase my knowledge, to increase my ilm, is to give that knowledge and ilm to those who do not have it. There are many types of loneliness that scholars of human behavior discuss. I'd like to discuss some of them that pertain to our community. 
Number one is the intellectual loneliness. What is intellectual loneliness? Imagine if you sit in a room with a couple of surgeons and they're talking about this complex surgery, surgical procedure. And if you're a person like me, you have no clue what's going on. So you sit there for half an hour, an hour, and it's very boring. You don't, you, you barely understand 10, 15% of what they're talking about. So you countlessly count every second for this meeting to end. And then after an hour, after two hours, after five hours, this meeting will end. You go back to your life. But it was miserable five hours, right? Now imagine if this meeting was prolonged to 12 hours and you were stuck in that room. Imagine if this meeting took three days, four days and you had to be there. Now, some of our community members, not just here in America, but here and in the Muslim countries experience intellectual loneliness throughout their whole life. What do I mean? I mean a person that is illiterate, a person that is not educated, will wake up every morning, look at everyone that's educated, going to work, going to school, making money, earning ends meet, paying the bills, and think, how am I supposed to pay my bills? How am I supposed to make ends meet? How am I supposed to pay rent? How am I supposed to bring happiness to my family? Yet he has to. So he has to work longer hours. He has to endure pain. He has to endure poverty every single day of his life. Feeling that intellectual loneliness. And I was telling Dr. Iqbal before I came that when I went to Pakistan and Islamabad, I met some of the officials and they were telling me that the number of illiteracy in that country is extremely high. I don't want to quote them. It's very high. In some Muslim countries, specifically the cradle of Islam, the land of Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, the land which came to educate and bring intellectual reform to all of human beings, you find people that only know how to sign their name. They don't know how to read. They don't know how to write. Now, with that said, we live in this country and sometimes an employee, an employer, a friend, an article comes up talking about terrorists in the Middle East. So we come, we dissect this topic in so many different ways. Why do we have terrorists? We dissect the Quran, we examine the verses, the chapters, we examine different hadiths. One simple solution, my dear brothers and sisters. Lack of education is the cause. What do I mean? When a person feels he has nothing in this world, he does not have a job that is respectful, he will never be able to own a house. He will never be able to give a good wedding to his son and daughter. He will never be respected in society for his achievements. Someone comes and says to him, listen, you have a good option now. We give you $5,000, you give this to your family. Then you also end up going to paradise and there... Not only you don't feel lonely, but there's going to be 40 virgins waiting for you there too. So you're going to have a very good time there. Paradise. The Prophet. The Sahaba will be there. And your family will get some money. Why would this person refuse such an offer? Why would this person say no to such an offer? So this person takes the offer. Several years ago, the Iraqi prime minister was telling a group of friends, I was amongst them, that they had caught a, a terrorist in the shrine of Al-Imam Amir Al-Mu'mineen, Imam Ali, in Najaf. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa Muhammad. In the month of Ramadan, they caught him. They caught him with a bomb strapped around him. They caught him. And as soon as they caught him, he began to cry. 
So they said, listen, you're going to kill yourself. I mean, what's the worst thing that can, that can happen? He said, no, 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 I'm not crying because I'm in trouble. I'm crying because I was fasting. I want to break my fast with Rasulullah. You now have taken the opportunity from me to break my fast with Rasulullah. Only an illiterate, ignorant, idiotic mind would believe that by killing innocent lives in the shrine of the brother of Rasulullah, the gate to the city of the knowledge of Rasulullah, the first Muslim, the commander-in-chief of the army of Rasulullah, you would have breakfast with Rasulullah in paradise. But this is ignorance. This is a lack of education. This is the intellectual reform that we ought to bring to this ummah. And I say this in every place that I go. I say, brothers, sisters, my beloveds. In the nights of the first eve of the month of Muharram, all the way until the ninth of Rabi' al-Awwal, when we commemorate the name of Abu Abdullah al-Hussein. Salawatullahi alayhi. We have to have the mission statement of Imam Hussein. So when people come in, they leave, they remind themselves of the mission statement of Imam Hussein. What is the mission statement of Imam Hussein? Like any other successful company and organization, Imam, Imam Hussein also had a mission statement for his followers, for me and you. What was his mission statement? He says, I have not left the city of Medina and embarked on this journey, but for the following reasons. He does not say for the following reasons. He says, but for the following reasons. Big difference. So that later on, historians, politicians, scholars, you name it, will not come and say those were some of the reasons of Hussein. Other reasons, na'udhu billah, na'udhu billah was because he had a dispute with Yazid among, uh, about a, a woman that he married and Yazid did not get to marry. Or it's because of their rivalry that traces back to pre-Islam or, or many of the rubbish that we hear today. Huh? So he says, إِنِّي لَمْ أَخْرُجْ أَشْرًا وَلَا بَطِرًا I did not leave but for the islah. For the perfection, for the reform within the um, community and the ummah of my grandfather Rasulullah. That is the only reason why I have embarked on this journey. And that is indeed my greatest of responsibilities. Today when we look at our responsibility, my dear brothers and sisters, towards others, it is to... Build schools for them, to give them education for those who are living in the Muslim countries and those who are here. How many of us brothers and sisters will come to a majlis every year, year in, year out for 40 years? But yet simple questions in regards to Islam, the Quran, the principles of our faith, we do not know how to answer. We do not know how to respond. Yes, we know exact details, very details of, for example, the battle of Ashura and every second of the battle of Ashura, which is great. However, someone comes and tells me, Jawad, chapter 9 of the Holy Quran, why doesn't it start with Bismillah? Why are there verses in the Holy Quran that speak of violence or killing the infidels? Why is there hadiths, for example, in some books speaking of, for example, Rasulullah doing a violent act? I have no clue that chapter 9 starts with no bismillah. I have no clue of the verses because I've never read the Quran and I have no clue of hadiths or the books of hadith. So we not only empower them, give them education, 
whether they are our family, whether they are our cousins, whether it's a village that we were born in, we have a responsibility. The islah of the entire ummah, number one, and within the country that we live in. We have to have the ability to change that intellectual reform. That's number one. Number two, social and cultural loneliness. What do I mean? Our community experiences social and cultural loneliness in three different forms. Number one is when we immigrate to this country. Those who have immigrated to this country will experience what's called cultural loneliness or a culture clash. I'll give you a, a story. One of my friends, Sasayid, we have been here for five, six years. My mother had to learn the, the uh, immigration test. So he said, I tried. She wasn't learning the test. Everything I tried to explain to her, she doesn't get it. I tried to. So he said, I realized the best way is to just make her memorize the answers. So I said, listen, the first question, the answer is, for example, Bill Clinton. The first question, the second question is, for example, Al Gore. The third question is, for example, red, white, and blue. And everything he asks you, you give him the fourth answer, the fifth answer, until 10, 12 questions, and the test will end. So he said, I took my mom, we went to the immigration test. The officer said, hello. My mother said, hello. Then he said, how are you, today? How are you doing today? She said, Bill Clinton. He said, excuse me? He said, she said, Al Gore. And the third question, she said, red, wine, and blue, for example. This is the culture clash that some people experience to that level, yes. Someone tells me that his father living in San Diego, this is a true story. Both of them are true stories. You can make a movie about them if you like. Says my father would come home and leave home by looking at the camel uh, cigarettes advertisement bulletin board on the freeway. So when he sees the camel advertisement, he exits. So he says one day he had gone to the Friday prayers and he's driving on the freeway and he's driving, driving, driving until he calls his son. He says, son, there's a problem. Dad, what's the problem? He says, I feel like I've gone back to Iraq. <laughs> And the son realizes that he has driven into Mexico. Culture clash is something that a lot of people experience, especially the elders with the younger generation. So a father that's grown up in Pakistan and in India and in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Lebanon will want the same exact lifestyle the same exact way of dressing, the same exact way of speaking, the same exact way of uh, hairstyle, the same exact way of everything that his son that's born in this country does. This is unfair. This is completely unfair. You were born and raised in a different country. This person is born and raised in a different country at a different time. Enforcing such things onto our family Enforcing such things onto our children is completely unfair and it's meaningless. Because when it comes to the important aspects, we've already created a rebellion within them. We've created this rebellion. Now when we even tell them the good things that they must incorporate in their lives, they're not willing to listen. Because to them, our advice is then meaningless. When I tell my son, you have to, I don't like your jeans. Doesn't, you don't have to like his jeans. I don't like your hairstyle. You don't have to like his hairstyle. It's as simple as that. There's no other way for me to put it. But when I come and tell him, son, now, for example, on the day of Friday, you should come and attend Salatul Jum'ah. Salatul Jum'ah purifies your soul. Salatul Jum'ah brings you back to Allah. It creates a balance in your life that you've dedicated 24-7 of school and work in this country. 
He says, this advice again is also meaningless, so I'm not going to listen to it now again. So we have to create that balance. Now those immigrants that have come to this country not only try to impose this within the family, I'm not saying all the time, some of the times, but also they are the founders and the pioneers of the majority of the Islamic centers today in America. Listen to me carefully. So when you go to an Islamic center in America, the majority of Islamic centers in America and our community today, it must, it must give you a sense and a feeling of where you're from. So if you go in a center, you have to feel this is a small town in Iran or a small you know, masjid in, in Iran. You just, it happens to be, for example, in America. But when you go in there, this is the feeling you get. Or when you go in another one, you feel you're in Pakistan. And another one, you feel you're in Lebanon. And another one, you feel you're in Afghanistan. And this, of course, to them is the greatest feeling because they can't go to Afghanistan every week. They can't go back to Pakistan every week. They can't go back to Iran every week. So when they come and they gather, this is the best way to reconnect. And it's mandatory for them. It's a must. Or else they're going to feel that loneliness and need. So they come to fix that need and to give remedy to that urge by creating such Islamic centers. Give me your undivided attention. So when you go in there, there's one Islamic center for the Afghanis, one for the Pakistanis, one for the Lebanese, one for the Indians, one... And the children who are born in this country don't really feel Indian. Yes, they know their parents are from India, Pakistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria. But they don't have the same connection that you have with your country. They don't have the same connection that you have with the, with the place you were born in. It's not something you can change. Just like you do not have the same connection with the baseball team that they like. Just like you don't have the connection with Kobe Bryant that they have. They're never going to have that connection with the village that you were born in. Let's face it. Isn't Imam Hussein here for reform? Isn't Imam Hussein here for change? As long as we keep running our centers according to culture, then we should not expect the youth to have heavy participation. I'm not discouraging the youth saying, as long as you're Masjid is like that, don't attend. This is not what I'm saying. In fact, I say the opposite. I say try to attend. Try to get involved. Try to speak to them and try to slowly change things. I'm not saying change things in a way that, you know, na'udhu billah, like what the Christians and the Jews and recently, Isna, mashallah, mashallah. This Isna has done a marvelous job by giving the latest statement. They say, Christians, Jews, they say, it's okay. Jews, you want to be atheist? It's okay. Be atheist, but remain a Jew. They brought religion to the people. Christians, you want to be a Christian atheist? That's fine. Just as long as you're Christian. You want to be a Christian homosexual? That's fine. As long as you're Christian. It's okay. We accept you. This is not an Islam. We do not bring religion to that extent to people. This is not the religion of Islam. We do not bend the rules of Islam to seek the pleasure of people and to have more people in our congregation. This is not it. But however, when you go to church, when you go to synagogue, all you hear about there is this life. How to make money, how to go to school, what to wear. It's all about this life. They give you everything they talk about. They never talk about it. Go to church. Do they ever talk about the hereafter, after you die, what's going to happen? Never. Never. You'll never hear someone talking about when you die, this is what's going to happen. This is heaven. This is hell. No. It's all about this life. The problem is when we come as Muslims to the masjid, it's never about this life. It's always about the hereafter. They say someone became a Muslim. So he told his friend, I want to go to the masjid. 
So his friend took him to the masjid. They prayed the morning prayers. After they were finished the morning prayers, he said, listen, you're 40 years old. You haven't prayed for 40 years. So you stay here until Dhuhr time. Do some extra prayers. So he said, okay. So he did some extra prayers. Dhuhr time came. He did Dhuhr prayers. He wanted to leave. He said, no, no. An hour from now, Asr time. So you stay here, read some Quran, practice your Salah, and Asr time you leave. Asr time, he came, he wanted to leave. He told him, no, no, three hours from now, Maghrib time. So you stay until Maghrib. So he stayed until Maghrib. He's doing other ibadat. Maghrib time came, he wants to leave. He says, no, no, one more Asha time. Asha time, he prayed. He told him, brother, you know, now there's Salat al-Layl, the night prayers. He said, believe me, I've changed my mind. I'm just going to go back to what I was. So when we come to our centers, unfortunately, it's all about the hereafter. Or it's all about things we do not relate to. Imam Hussein says, Islah fi ummati jaddi Rasulullah. And the islah that we need today is to see those beautiful young faces in the masjid, running the masjid, taking care of the masjid, feeling at home, feeling connected, and more importantly, feeling when they come, and they leave, they're not judged. Who are we to judge them? Who are we to put them down? We must accept them and embrace them the same way that we learn from Imam Hussein to embrace others. I remember I said the story last year. I'm going to use a couple of seconds to shed light on the story again. You heard the story of the man who Imam Hussein sallallahu alayhi encountered before before the day of Ashura by several days by the name of Zuhair ibn al-Qayn. Zuhair ibn al-Qayn was the enemy of Ahl al-Bayt, the enemy of Imam Ali. He was a staunch enemy holding the swords in the battle of Safin and the battle of Jamal. Imam Hussein met Zuhair ibn al-Qayn several days before Ashura. Imam Hussein didn't say, I don't want to see this man. I don't want to meet this man. I don't want to speak to this man. He embraced him. Imam Hussein embraced him. He spoke to this man, Zuhair ibn al-Qayn, changed completely. He becomes one of the companions of Hussein, one of the lovers of Hussein, one of the martyrs in the day of Ashura. Zuhair ibn al-Qayn. Go read his history. He was Uthmani against Imam Ali. He had stood against Imam Hussein, Imam Hussein himself in the battle of Safin and the battle of Nahrawan. Huh? Imam Hussein embraced him. Imam Hussein embraced Hur. Hur ibn Yazid. Let us make sure that we embrace the youth. We do not judge them. We do not drive them away. This is number one. Those who immigrate will feel the social and cultural loneliness. Number two, are the ones that are born here, the youth, those beloved friends that I see them here tonight, mashallah, they will also feel cultural loneliness. What do I mean? I mean, time comes in high school, everybody's going on a lunch break to McDonald's. Everybody's ordering a Big Mac. Now this guy comes, he's ordering fish. Okay, you like fish today. The next day, he's also ordering fish. The third day, he's also ordering fish. The tenth day, he's also, he's also ordering fish. They come to him, listen, buddy, do you really like fish? No, I don't have the option of eating the Big Mac. So at that time, he has a decision to make. Either he's going to fit in or he's going to experience social loneliness. There's no other way around it. Either he's going to fit in with his group of friends or he's going to accept the social loneliness. That's not easy. Believe me, that's not easy. You know how much inspiration our youth need? You know how much encouragement they need? You know how much they need to be reminded of this great form of struggle and jihad that they're going through every day? 12th grade, everybody goes to? Where? Prom. Two options. You either have to go to prom or you experience social loneliness. I'll go as far as even saying our name. Sometimes you go to people, yeah, if your name is Muhammad, everybody can pronounce Muhammad. 
But for example, if you have a, a harder name, huh? For example, Rahmat. People don't know what Rahmat means. So automatically people either have to change their name from Rahmat to, for example, Ray, or from, for example, Mahdi to Mike, or they have to accept the social loneliness. And our ch children, our youth, our beloveds are going through this every day. Number three, our community experiences social loneliness, cultural loneliness, when it comes to the converts. We don't care about the converts. Those who struggle more than us, those who fight to find the religion of Islam. Do you know the, the trouble that converts go through? Number one, the first is they have to study the religion of Islam. Studies indicate they study Islam for five consecutive years before they convert. So five years they're studying a religion. That's one. Number two, when they convert, can they tell their parents? Can they tell their friends? No. I Several, several weeks ago, I was at NYU speaking. A sister came to me. She said, I'm teaching Christianity. Teaching Christianity. I'm a professor of Christian literature, but I've converted to Islam. I cannot tell them that I've converted to Islam. The moment they know, they'll sack me. Do you know the difficulty? Huh? I know some folks tell me that when they convert to Islam, they have to perform their five daily prayers in the bathroom. Being afraid of their parents. Being disowned by their parents. Being kicked out of the house. huh? So this is two. Number three, the difficulty of learning how to pray. Learning how to fast. Learning how to do wudu. Learning the Islamic laws. They have to research everything. We undermine all of this. We undermine all those difficulties. Yeah, because we were born seeing our parents pray. So we learn how to pray. It's easy for us to pray. We, the first thing we saw our parents do to pray, so we learn how to pray. We grew up fasting 30 days in the month of Ramadan. We grew up reciting dua, reciting the Quran. This person at the age 30, at the age 40, has to now learn how to pronounce the salah. This is another difficulty. They've never observed siyam, so this is another difficulty. Yet, when they come to our centers, instead of embracing them, loving them, helping them, assisting them financially, emotionally, from every aspect, they feel lonely. Wallahi, they feel lonely. Some of them say, Sayyid, we sit at a dinner table, everybody's speaking Arabic. I don't understand anything. Everybody's speaking Urdu. I don't understand anything. The food, I, don't, I cannot eat. They look at me as an outsider. They do not engage with me like they engage with others. Yes, maybe we do not feel those little things, but they make a difference. They make a huge difference. It is our responsibility to embrace them, to allow them to feel welcomed in our community, or else we have failed miserably in our responsibility towards the religion of Islam. We, we, alhamdulillah, do not go out of our way in any possible way to propagate the religion of Islam. Do we? No. Now, those people who have done the homework, they've come. At least them, let us be kind to them. Let us be merciful to them. Let us love them, embrace them. Wallahi. One of the sisters came to me. She said, Sayyid, I went to a masjid after I had converted. I converted in some small town in Texas. She told me this. She said, I converted one day. I saw the Quran. In the library, in, in our school, she said, in my school, there was a Quran on the table. So she said, I just saw it, I opened it, I read it. She said, I really like the book. So I read some more, I read some more, then I checked it out from the library, I read the whole Quran, then I did research, three years later, I wanted to convert. So she said, I went to a masjid. I didn't know I have to wear hijab, I didn't know the etiquette, so I went to a masjid. I said, I'm here to convert, they told me, you are najis, get out of the masjid. This is 
how we sometimes embrace those people who have worked hard. Hard, believe me, more pure than me. More pure than many people like me. With their intentions, with their endeavors, with their hard work. So this is this third type of cultural and social loneliness. Imam Zainul Abideen, salawatullahi wa salamuhu In his period of imama came to fight this notion of loneliness in many ways. First of all, if you look at the hadiths of Imam Zainul Abideen, Imam Zainul Abideen encourages many issues amongst them, as-salatul jama'ah, congressional prayers, congregational prayers. Amongst them is, for example, the hadiths in regards to Salat al-Eid, the Eid prayers, the hadiths in regards to visiting the ill, the hadith in regards to paying charity, the hadith in regards to shaking the hands of your brothers, the etiquettes. If you're feeling lonely but you have a masjid to go to every day, then there is going to be some sort of interaction, some sort of friendship. This is not what we're talking about. This is, we're beyond this. Islam says, masjid. Beautify yourself, decorate yourself in every masjid. What do I mean? Islam doesn't just say, go to the masjid, play the five day prayers. It says, beautify yourself when you go to the masjid. Now someone's lonely. They go to the masjid. They've ate a couple of onions. And couple of what else? Garlic, without putting any perfume. Socks they have not changed in a couple of days, so they go to the masjid. This person was lonely. He is lonely. He's always going to be lonely. True, huh? Allah says, "Khudu masjid." Purify yourself when you go to the masjid. Rasulullah would comb his beard, fix his attire, look at himself in the mirror, put beautiful scent, then he would go out. One day Aisha told him, Ya Rasulullah, why do you take care of your looks so much? He says, I am decorating myself for the believers, for the mu'mineen. Huh? Some of us, no, we don't care. When we go to work in the morning, mashallah, we wear the nice suit, it's ironed, we wear the tie, the nice watch, we go. When we come to the masjid, we wear the pajamas and a t-shirt and, and we come to the masjid because masjid is where we have to feel comfortable or I don't know, like relaxed or... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, خُدُوا زِينَتَكُمْ عِنْدَ مَسْجِدٍ Furthermore, it is makruh. Some things are makruh to do in the masjid. For example, eating onions, eating garlic, not putting scent, not combing our beards, not wearing beautiful clothes. It is makruh to do before we go to the masjid, right? Those are the hadiths that Imam Zainul Abideen was speaking of at the time of his imamah. Not only that, but he came to give intellectual reform to those who had lost the meaning of Islam. He introduced to them with Risalatul Hukuq. Read Risalatul Hukuq. Isn't this Risala of Hukuq, the treaties of rights, a form of taking people out of ignorance and bringing them into enlightenment, bringing them into awareness? Those who were so ignorant to kill the grandson of their prophet. Huh? Another form of cultural loneliness that people were experiencing at the time that Imam Zain al-Abideen had to fight with. With this I conclude. I had a lot more to say but inshallah with this I conclude. Imam Zain al-Abideen's mother was a non-Arab. So Imam Zain al-Abideen himself had mixed blood. And to the Arabs at the time, this was shameful to have mixed in your blood. To them, you had to be pure Arab. Imam Zainul Abideen was not a pure Arab. And the pure Arabs were given a special status. The non-Arabs were given a much lower status. And then there was a middle class called the Hujana. 
the hujana were the ones with mixed blood. Imam Zain al-Abideen was amongst them. He had mixed blood. Half Arab, half Persian. Imam Zain al-Abideen came to change their paradigms of the non-Arabs, of that cultural clash, of that cultural loneliness. The hujana, he came, he embraced them. The slaves, he came. He would pick them from the streets. He would bring them home. He would give them money. He would teach them, turn them into scholars, and send them back. He would free them and send them as scholars to society. But he came specifically to the hujana and he made sure people's mindset changed towards the hujana, the, mixed, the ones with the mixed blood. To a point where one day, Hisham ibn al-Hakam, Hisham ibn al-Hakam had gone to Hajj. Imam Zain al-Abidin had also gone to Hajj. Imam Zain al-Abidin came inside Masjid al-Haram and Hisham ibn al-Hakam saw the waves of people moving while he was making his way towards the Kaaba. Allahu Akbar. So he said, who is this man? They said to him, he's a hajin. He's a person with mixed blood. He said, really? A hajin with this respect? Who is this man? So the beautiful poet, Al-Farazdaq, he got up and he introduced Imam Zainul Abidin in lines of poetry. He says to him, this man, who you are ignorant of, he is the master of the Arabs and the non-Arabs. This man, bijaddihi, Bijaddihi Anbiya Allah Adhutimu. With his grandfather, Allah sealed the messengers. With his grandfather, Allah sealed the messengers. And Imam Zainul Abideen, Salawatullahi wa Salamahu alayhi. He himself, he himself, though, went through loneliness that could not be, that could not find remedy. The loneliness of the 10th of Maharaj. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله